Hello, and welcome to Got The Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of... (laughs) (laughs) Not our sexiest comic. No. An adorable old lady and her husband. That's her husband, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Surely. Who else could it be? Certainly. Well, you know, boyfriend... I guess. <laughs> Male companion of some description? Mm, cousin. Sure, why not? I think probably they would have been identified as such, but you're really clicking away there. What are you looking at? I'm trying to get my um, software for my mic to open so that I can adjust my levels on the fly, because they're looking a little mm. wonky again. It's not uh, working. Oh, well, hopefully the intrepid listener is still hearing this, and hopefully... You are ready, both you, David, and the listening audience, to dive in to another episode of Tilly Walden, Tilly Tilly, as we like to say. Would you say you're, um, uh, uh, boy, what's, I, I want to do like a pilled joke, but then I also want it to be tilled, but then I, then I'm, I was going to say till pilled, but like, I want it to be something tilled. R- like the squiggly line. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> is, that what you, is that what you meant? Um, I forgot that that was like related, but um, yeah, let's go with yes. Well, I was going to say red-tilled, blue-tilled, because this comic has colors in it. One-tilled, two-tilled. Yes, this is a, a colorful joint, <laughs> yeah. comparatively um, speaking. What are we doing? <laughs> I, my sound is now uh, up and at him. Maybe you can hear the increased uh, volume and quality here. So now I can focus fully on what you're saying, which no doubt was riveting. <laughs> it was. Uh, and of course, this week we are covering Tilly Walden's, I don't know, like fifth or something, sixth. It depends how you count like sketchbooks and children's books. Weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, that didn't come out till this year, so. But one of her, uh, one of her releases, mm-hmm. her th- third most recent release, I imagine. Uh, Are you listening? From 2019. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one. Certainly, I mean, certainly. if you go in cold, Harrowing, I would go <laughs> go so far as to say. <laughs> I would certainly go so far as to say that as well, and just like. Oh, did this, go, did this was this published in 2020? No, no, it was published in 2019. Okay, then Wikipedia is wrong. It is. Yeah, I mean, this is a book... I mean, certainly I think it's best to go in cold because, you know, it's it goes a lot of weird places. It goes it does, a lot of places yeah. that I was not anticipating. It goes... Yeah, I mean, I don't even really know where to start. Yeah, so the only thing I had was the blurb that she has about it on her website, which is, are you listening out now includes cats, road tripping, Texas, friendship, creepy government officials, and trauma where available wherever it is you like to get books from. Hopefully that's your local bookstore. That was like the full context I had plus the cover. So I was kind of expecting something a little more kind of like, well, I don't know what I was expecting because 
<laughs> but so part of the confusion here, as I alluded to earlier, when I went to search the title of this book, I wrote in this, uh, I love this part. So I the conflate return. these two because they both involve hypothetically listening to something. And so when I think about this book, I picture the cover of, I love this part. So I was like, yeah, it's about two people who love music. <laughs> Mm. Uh, which obviously is not part of it. And then reading that blurb. Weirdly not was, at all part of it. Yeah, not really not at all part of it. Uh, considering it's like a road trip book. And yeah. I feel like music is usually, uh, you know, very much a part of any any road trip story. Well, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> reading that little blurb. That's a road chip story. Uh-huh. I <laughs> was like, this also sounds kind of like X-Files Z, which it also isn't at all. Sure, I guess the creepy government effect. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, it, I think that there is some intent there to present itself as like a slice of life that sort of gradually develops itself into something further, right? I mean, like, certainly it's trying to present itself as being fairly like grounded and you know in our world at least at first, right? Yeah, like in terms of that blurb, or in terms of like the book itself. In terms of the comic, I think yeah. like I think the comic, the intent of the comic is to bring you into a world that seems like you know it's going to be like a spinning or like a, you know something to that effect, but then gradually becomes something much more fantastical. Yes, um, I read a, a few reviews of this in which the fantastical elements were uh, poo pooed quite a bit, which. Mm. Hard disagree for me, but um, interesting. I I will say it's got like a vibe throughout. Not to say that there's anything like inherently like weird about it necessarily from the get go. Although it does start with like that demented map, and then goes right into like an ostensibly normal scene of like B waiting for the bus, but like the coloring is like weird in a way that makes everything feel kind of like surreal and intense um and like the people on the bus are are in these like heavy shadows that make them very like eerie and unsettling so even though we do like start out you know in our world it is kind of like creepy and weird from the get-go yeah which is it's interesting that she sort of decided to take that tone of it because like i you know I think a lot of her work sort of lives in like uncomfortability almost mm -hmm. and awkwardness because I think a lot of her characters are sort of like, you know, I think in a lot of her stories, the progression is sort of like characters going from a place of like instability and like uncomfortability with themselves to like a place of more comfort. But it is weird that it is weird that it is like that consistently sort of like off-putting and and like you said like has like not an x-files but maybe like a a, a welcome to night veil never listened but <laughs> me neither i imagine uh, sure sort of like a like a weird america yeah kind of definitely feeling to it should we try and summarize this book i mean sure i don't think it's too it's too tough really um so i'll tackle it start the clock haven't done that one in a while so we have two young or youngish women in uh, B and Lou, who are both on road trips respectively, 
uh, B is fleeing home and Lou is ostensibly going to visit uh, a relative after the death of her mother, but is also sort of uh, on running away uh, in her own way, you might uh, you might say, who are family friends and chance to encounter each other um, at a gas station, uh, at which point uh, B, Lou offers B a ride, which she kind of grudgingly accepts. They have uh, a sort of uh, hot and cold relationship where they both seem to like annoy each other quite a bit, but also have a kind of instant uh, connection as well. They travel together to where uh, B claimed that she was going, at which point she kind of confesses that she's really just sort of running away uh, and asks B uh, Lou if she can <laughs> accompany her to uh, visit her relative. They go to visit her relative and along the way find a stray cat uh, and resolve to return it to its owner, leading them into uh, a part of Texas that is not on the map uh, where many weird happenings are happening and uh, the aforementioned government officials uh, seem to be tailing them and trying to get the cat. They over the course of this road trip open up to each other and to share some of the uh the hurts and hopes uh that they have uh and eventually after a car accident caused by the government officials are able to return the cat uh to its home uh, and then return themselves to sort of the normal world each with a new kind of better understanding of themselves and how they are going to go forward despite all of the same problems that they had at the start being in place yes sure um (laughs) i mean i feel like at this point like you know in 2022 or whatever it's kind of like a meme to have a book like secretly be about trauma (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh but like that is like so baked into this book in an interesting way i wouldn't say that it's secretly about trauma. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i suppose so yeah But yeah, it's interesting because like, you know, we talked about the idea of spinning being like the catharsis or sorry, on a sunbeam being like the catharsis to spinning that we didn't really see. But then this even more so is Mm -hmm. like, I'm still working through these things. I mean, like, you know, again, we're going off of autobiographical elements of her life, but like specifically sexual assault mm-hmm. and like cars mm-hmm. yeah big, are like big are so cars. prevalent which are you know the, the sort of two of the major like traumatic events of her life that we know of mm-hmm. yeah i did think it was really interesting in particular because she's got like that that really early comic that i mentioned in the first episode glare which is about a very gruesome car accident right and in which like the headlights of the cars are a very like kind of prominent recurring element. And then as I was reading this, not, well, I mean, I guess this is my brand to make an extremely reductive comparison to one of the like five manga artists I know. But when like the government officials are chasing them around in their van, their headlights are drawn like, like the Junji Ito, like body holes where there's just like all these like <laughs> sure. extra lines that make them look like eldritch, like pits. Whereas yeah. like, this is very interesting that like the headlights of like the cars which have previously been like a really prominent feature in one of her stories here are rendered as like almost like horror elements of the like antagonists of this book. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, I think that, yeah. And I think it's interesting because one of the central, like, you know, sort of through lines is like learning to drive. And obviously like, I think there's a, you know, I think, I think this is probably the one that's like, maybe the most obvious in its metaphor perhaps but also only because we already have the background 
of spinning. Like we might not see it otherwise, but like the idea that it's like her learning to drive is sort of, you know, it's reclaiming power. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's sort of her like taking back the control over her own life in some ways. Yeah. And, and really like the whole, like the ultimate sort of narrative thrust of the book in terms of the climax and sort of like the revelation about the cat being that like, it's not that the cat is special. It's more so that like the cat knows how to like tap into things that we can all do in the right place. And then the like power that's revealed is to like make your own road, like determine your own course. Like you, like you Mm. basically like you make your own surroundings and you decide where you're going is basically what like the power of the magic boils down to, which is obviously kind of like, that's, that's the theme basically is like, you know, the past is, is unchangeable, but these two characters both have the power to basically, you know, decide where they go from here. Yeah. And I, there was an interesting line in that little sequence that she says when she's talking about that, that you, you got to be standing somewhere in the world and in the body that lets you see it, which is a, like, I feel like a very like queer thing mm-hmm. to be like, I have to be in like the body that I want or like, you know, to to have that sort of like physical grounding, I thought was mm-hmm. an interesting line, just a little aside. Anyways, what do we want to talk about there is like weirdly a lot but also there's very little yeah i mean it's like what what can we say she's <laughs> she's the future of comics baby she's <laughs> she's so, a master so did of you like craft. love this um i i have a hard time saying i loved it because like i said it's like harrowing to read at times and it can be it like is. quite relentless even before like you know obviously sort of the the big scene is when she sort of like explains the the details of her her like long-term sexual abuse but like even before then it is just quite like it's not quite joyless because they do like you know have the have the sort of like connection with each other but like whereas i would say all of her previous works are melancholy this is like a bit beyond just sort of like melancholy and it right. that can be kind of like oppressive at times which makes it hard to say fully that i read it and i was like i had a great time <laughs> <laughs> right but i do sort of look at it in terms like it and its place in her career at this point as like the spinning on a sunbeam are you listening run and i am kind of like man, she's like on a real hot streak here in terms of like, you know, I I do feel like artistically, this is a step beyond either spinning or on a sunbeam where like, it it has some of the same confusion that we sort of talked about in on a sunbeam, but it feels much more, I guess, kind of like deliberate and um, like tonally and thematically appropriate. Um, I think the expanded use of color is like, you know, really brings a lot to it. She is doing so much stuff throughout with like paneling in particular seems to have Mm -hmm. been kind of like a point of interest where she does all kinds of stuff with the gutters that like, yeah, where it's like unfinished. Yeah. Like, like the gutter between two panels will only be there kind of part way. And then we'll sort of like join. She'll use like wavy lines between the gutters. She'll use the gutters to separate like what would be one full image in ways that I think are like interesting or thought provoking at times. And then even just like her style, like I was looking at some of the images of this compared to on a sunbeam, which, you know, she was probably putting out a lot faster because of this whole like kind of webcomic background of it. But I was like, 
this is just sort of like a more, you know, it, it does look more polished. It does look more kind of like self-assured. And, and I would say even like you're, I'm starting to feel like some more influences to her here beyond just kind of like the manga stuff that, you know, kind of gets talked about quite heavily where when I was looking at this, I was like, this almost feels more like European to me or like the Mm. artist that I was looking at a lot and comparing it to um, was Hartley Lynn, who is a Canadian artist and, and who probably also has some manga influence, but like has more kind of like a a Tintinish or like a, like, you know, the the whole kind of band dessinée influence, which a lot of Canadian artists have. Um, And I was like, this does feel in some ways almost more like it is like, grounded in the sort of European tradition than the Japanese tradition for me at a lot of points. Yeah, I think the character designs, especially are sort of like splitting that difference between like a Ghibli and a Tintin. Like you can, so it's sort of like the intersection of those two. I mean, like the way that Lou's glasses sort of like become (laughs) reflective a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is I feel like something that you see in both those uh, like styles of comics. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's not to say like, I mean, even as I'm looking at it now, um, I can think of other like anime specifically where I'm like, it does kind of remind me of that where like, you know, some of the shots of Lou, uh, what was that show called? Oh, it's like Cyber Six. I'm like, this kind of looks like how the art was like in Cyber Six sometimes (laughs) where I'm looking at a particular panel of Lou and it's like the hair and the eyes. I'm like, this looks like how that character was drawn when she was like in disguise as her like male civilian alter ego. Yes. I was going to say, do you know how like Cyber Six, like I've seen like so many think pieces about Cyber Six. (laughs) Well, cause like, I know know there is the whole, yeah, there is the whole, the whole like kind of gender aspect to it for sure. Yeah, which is very interesting. And Cyber Six is actually based on an Argentinian comic. Well, so there you go, because I would assume that that presumably has a lot more European influence. That's I mean, it's great. It's it's also crazy because it's like based on an Argentinian comic produced in Vancouver, animated in Japan. (laughs) That is that is kind of demented. (laughs) A leather clad female gynoid. Um, I believe that's like. A female android question mark yes uh a, or a fembot hmm. um remember her giant panther <laughs> oh i thought you were gonna say remember her giant hat <laughs> <laughs> sure uh and for that matter her like giant lunk detective sidekick that guy was huge sure she is kind of um pre-bayonetta yeah, kind of. So anyways, I, I did like get kind of... Whoa. <laughs> okay, go on. So the, the backstory of Cyber Six is that like a Nazi scientist who fled oh, yeah, to I South America like creates androids. Yeah, I did know about that. Because that's like everyone she fights is like other like Frankenstein-y type like monster and android things. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I think it's interesting because... I, For me, I was almost like, I don't know how I quite feel about the color. And it is it is a bit of like, it's weird because like with the Scott Pilgrim, I was like, I don't really notice this or it enhances it. And then with this, I was like, I don't know. I kind of feel like her style is, you know, like it's the same way I would feel seeing like a full color manga where it's just like, this doesn't look quite right. 
she does like you know i love the way that she does like backgrounds and stuff i love the colors she uses and like the way she'll do like clouds and stuff that's very similar to on a sunbeam which i love Mm -hmm. but then like it just feels weird to like see that and then be like and here's her red shirt (laughs) (laughs) it is like i mean she's the palette is still low saturation generally i would say um where like and a the lot background of the, will sort of have this wash to it yeah like it it all does have a kind of like pastel-y or watercolor sort of feel to it and like none of the none of the colors are like really rich per se which i do think is more kind of like in keeping with her previous stuff where even though she was only using one or two colors it would often be a similar like quite muted you know she never goes for like a really like deep color it's always quite light quite kind of like blush almost (laughs) there is also like the texas of it all well yeah that's that's a big like yeah it's it's there's a lot of uh, her in this and i think she's the kind of person who there's always kind of going to be a lot of her in everything she does even like i was doing a little bit of like pre-reading for clementine and i saw that the premise of it is like clementine's going to vermont (laughs) it's like oh interesting (laughs) um so like i think some cartooning there (laughs) i do think that like as much as she sort of talked about like you know i'm not i'm not a memoirist i'm like a fiction writer i do think that there's a reason that she had that kind of impulse towards memoir at one point and i do think that inevitably some kind of like autobiographical stuff is going to work its way in as it does with like anybody's you know any any creator is going to have some of their own life and self work into it. And we saw certainly saw plenty of that with like Brian Lee O'Malley, for example, who I think sure. is like a weirdly similar <laughs> creator in some yeah, ways. We've talked about Brian Lee O'Malley a lot, but, but yeah, like I, I did, like I thought the, the Texas of it all, it like is weirdly kind of both like an ode to Texas and sort of like, a, a like rebuke. is there any place as bad as Texas <laughs> simultaneously? I think it does capture some like kind of mixed and complicated, feelings even just like a a thing that i was like looking at and kind of thinking that's funny about is when lou tells that story where b is like is it true that you like built a car when you were 13 that's a bit where it's like basically like is it true you're a child prodigy that's so cool and she's like it is true and it was cool when like you know it was just sort of you know, something that I accomplished and could like prove to myself that I accomplished it and could like celebrate with my family. But now it's kind of annoying that it's like all anybody talks about is how I did this prodigious feat when I was so young. (laughs) It's like, hmm, interesting. And even her like kind of whole dissatisfaction where it's like, it's not like I now don't like cars. It's just like, you know, defining myself by my work on my cars <laughs> is <laughs> no longer as satisfying as it used to be or as I thought it would be. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and and that also ties into the same idea that I was talking about a little earlier, that it's like, I liked it when it was something I had accomplished. I didn't like it when it was a story that people told, which sort mm-hmm. of gets back to that idea of like, wanting to control your own narrative. And I think, you know, that probably does harken back to the idea of like, I wrote a memoir that people read and, you know, you sort you talked about, I think on the spinning episode, the idea that people can come up to her and be like, I know you. Cause like, I know like things that happened in your life. And I feel like that sort of like control of self and the idea that you've sort of like given a piece of yourself and a piece of your story like over to the world in this way mm-hmm. is and even a really like, interesting idea 
Yeah. And even the like idea of their sort of friendship being predicated on like, we, we actually don't know each other that well. And it's kind of nice to be around someone who doesn't have all of these like assumptions about who I am. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to get back to your Texas thought, like, I think they sort of harken back to that in the sort of climactic encounter or the conversation scene where it seems like sort of she loves the land, but doesn't necessarily love the people is sort of the vibe that I mm-hmm. get. So like, well, cause like, she, you know, she talks about the geography in such loving terms. And that sort of is ultimately like what the book becomes about is the geography and the land and like it being such like a magical place. But then it's like all the people she encounters are either like impediments or like terrible, like harbingers of doom in some way. Well, Cora's nice. Sure. Um, yeah, I she's did. She's so short. She is so short and she's so sweet. She just wants her to be happy. Um, I did think it was interesting that like as they're leaving West, the line is like they they like look back basically at everything and it is like still all like weird and magical and and like all that stuff. But Lou like looks back and says like or B says like what's look back like what's behind us and she's like it's just a lot of land which is like an interesting, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like, so is that sort of like the, uh, a, a kind of like the magic was in me all along type thing? Is that a like kind of just like, I guess, like letting go of both like the good and bad that is in Texas in the interest of kind of like moving beyond it or like what exactly? I'm not sure what to make of that entirely. Yeah, because, well, I, I think there is, a juxtaposition as well, because the way that it's sort of mapped out is, you know, it, she says, uh, B says, what do you see behind us? And Lou says, it's just a lot of land. And then you cut to a splash page, a really gorgeous splash page. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like this whole road mapping behind you. And so I, th- I think it is meant to say like the, certainly the juxtaposition to me implies that like, Oh, like it's much more significant than what Lou mm-hmm. is saying. But then at the same time, I think it is about sort of being able to like, see and recognize the past but also move beyond the past Mm -hmm. that's certainly i think kind of like corroborated by the fact that like the main sort of thing that ties it all together is this road that b has kind of like laid out for them stretching out kind of like behind them where it's like certainly you know there's there's all the landscape there's the mountain there's the trees there's all of that but the main sort of thing that you see is the path like leading to the where they are now and like the road that is stretching out before them Mm -hmm, absolutely it's a rich text i gotta i gotta (laughs) say you and that's like we're not even talking about the like most like the textual parts of it really (laughs) no well i i mean it's also a thing where i do like i said i think this is the most sort of overt in its themes i mean (laughs) i feel like i i sort of like sometimes I think you're like drawn towards something that's easier to parse because you're like, this has themes and I understand them. So like mm-hmm. that, make, and it's like, that means I'm smart and that means the book is smart. <laughs> and so like, I, I try, you know, it's like, for me, sometimes it's like, if I, if I understand the themes, I, I'm like, well, like the book must be dumb. Well, this must like, be I stupid am. because I get it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Ham fisted. So, like, I got it. I didn't even really have to think about it. <laughs> Yeah, but like, you know, I think especially us having come from uh, having read Spinning, I think, you know, I think that informs a lot of 
what you sort of notice about the book. And that's what Mm -hmm. sort of interested me is that like she did spinning, which is like so personal, so autobiographical. And then she does on a sunbeam. And then I was like, for me, it was like, wow, she can do a thing that like has the same thematic ideas and is sort of like treading over similar ground that still feels of a piece with this other work, but is like divorced from the autobiographical nature of it. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, we sort of talked about how you can read, you know, personal elements into the characters and things like that. And so this was interesting because it, it, it you know, I hesitate to call it a regression, but it's like you're going from where I was like, I was impressed that she was able to sort of pre- move beyond that. And then it's like, and now we're back in. It's more, you know, it's not autobiographical, I don't think, but it is more overtly like drawing inspiration from her own life, drawing like characters and locations maybe more directly from her own life Mm. and so i was a little bit like oh well like we're sort of back here now oh yeah see i felt kind of the opposite where i was like maybe it is that it's like a little bit lower concept in its way and certainly has a smaller cast but i was like these are the characters that i was like wanting to see in on a sunbeam and felt like i didn't really get beyond mia and even then i'm kind of like i almost feel like even like these two characters are are richer characters in their way than sure. even mia was and like sure. you know kind of more more fully realized and i feel like the artistic kind of like you know step forward from on a sunbeam is built on here where she is like working you know, a bit more precisely, I think, in a way that's like a bit more planned. I saw from like kind of the process pages that she is back to penciling. She's not literally just drawing (laughs) the page in ink and then like publishing it where like I was like she has kind of brought back a bit of the like craft in a way that takes what I felt like was progression and then is like and here's what happens when you kind of like then add uh, like a deliberate hand to that and and kind yeah. of like take it to the next step where I was like this does feel like a next step for me in terms of like I think the writing is better I think the characterization is better I think the art is better might be strong but I think more kind of like thought out and I think the color mm-hmm. is used really well and so I guess like to get back to what kicked us off down this whole kind of like conversational tangent in the first place even though I'm not like I love this book. I had such a great time reading it. I love this part of her career. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I am like this, this sort of does stand as her showing like I'm, I'm at the height of my kind of like powers right now. Mm -hmm. And here's what I'm capable of. And like all of it works for me basically. Yeah. And you know, to sort of, I, I use the album metaphor on our last episode, so I'll, I'll bring it back here. One thing I say a lot about albums is like the two directions you can go musically, like that an artist or a band can go, is either like you make a more refined version of your previous album, or you like take like a, a right turn into like a new musical direction. Like I feel like Bon Iver is always my go-to example as like an artist who every album it feels like makes like this like drastic right turn and sort of like leaps forward into this new direction. Whereas I feel like this is more an example of that, the idea of like refinement of you're taking those ideas that were present in spinning and sort of refining it into a more cohesive work. And Mm -hmm. I think like we said, like spinning is kind of a messy work because it resists 
narrative and it you know it resists like easy characterization and things like that and i do agree i think this is the most like well characterized book that she's written and i think that a, a big part of that is because like it feels like she's revisiting you know because i think we talked about when she made spinning she maybe didn't have like the distance from it to sort of look at it in a way that it's like to have like an answer almost mm-hmm. you know yeah like, we talked about sort of the idea that it's like this doesn't really have an ending because it doesn't really like it feels like she doesn't really like know the answer to her own question whereas this it's like she maybe has a little bit more of the answer she knows what sort of like living her life beyond what happened in spinning looks like mm-hmm. and can sort of put that into the book and i also think having some distance from the characters because it's like you can't characterize yourself really mm-hmm. like you you it's going to be like i acted this way and obviously there's going to be like bias at play where it's like either like i'm so stupid for doing this or I was right for doing this and everyone else was stupid. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, like she can sort of look less judgmentally on the characters and just right. be like, why do they do this? Right. Yeah. I do think that another kind of part of it that warrants consideration is like how quickly she is putting out these books where it's like, yeah, it's this crazy. comes out like less than a year after on a sunbeam, <laughs> which is like completely insane I, I mean she did finish it in webcomic form and then publish it and then it came a, a year after the like published book version but like when you look back on it and you're like oh it's only been like two and a half years since she released spinning when this comes out then it's it, it almost makes more sense where it's sort of like you know I get, it makes sense that she hasn't really moved on like way beyond spinning because it's like that like just happened kind of like in, in mm-hmm. a sense. And even then I do feel like, you know, in with on a sunbeam, I thought that like having Shar and Alma as like kind of part of the crew and as like present in the story was showing like that she's starting to have a bit more of like an interest in kind of like more adult considerations and like looking at life beyond sort of the teen years. And I think that definitely like Lou's role in this book, you know, it's, it's kind of like she's at the, the median point between B and Lou. And so while there's a lot of stuff with B that is like similar to some of her own kind of like autobiographical information and maybe is a vehicle for her to continue kind of like through an artistic lens, looking back at some of that stuff. I think that Lou is really there as, as kind of like both her sort of like, here's some of what I've kind of experienced and been thinking about since then. And also like, here's kind of what I'm looking forward at where, you know, I do think that Lou like talking about like, am I wasting my twenties, like throwing myself into my work and not leaving room for anything else? Yeah. My, uh, cars Uh, (laughs) and and things like you know even her her whole like kind of emotional arc being like my mother died and I didn't get the chance to like say all of the things that I wanted to say to her which you know is is different with as far as I know at least Tilly Walden's mother is not dead but the relationship that we saw as depicted between them in spinning was complicated and like you know not necessarily super close and i think like kind of the whole the contemplation of the idea of like what if like i never got the chance to sort of like say some of those things it's not it's not hard to imagine that kind of like informing some of the the character and some of the arc 
of Lou. And so I just think that like the, it, it does have that interest in sort of like moving beyond the teenage years, moving beyond the young adult and like kind of coming of age type stuff and, and looking ahead towards like, what does my life as an adult look like? What are kind of the concerns that afflict me as an adult? It, it's like a step beyond anything we've seen her do previously, even when she did show some interest in that kind of thing. And I mm-hmm. think that is where like, I feel that it is a lot stronger than on a sunbeam in a lot of respects is, is that kind of more considered and balanced thing where it's like, yeah, there's still a lot of kind of the like looking back that's present here, but it does feel like there's more looking forward and even just looking at kind of like the now. Yeah. That's interesting. I never really had thought about that idea that it's almost, it is almost like, you know, if I could go to myself 10 years ago, what would I tell her? Mm -hmm. Like that sort of idea I think is actually, it's a great point. And I think, that maybe is like why the relationship between B and Lou is so interesting mm-hmm. because like, you know, I feel like it like sort of like ethically shies away from romantic tension. Yeah. I was, uh, <laughs> I had moments where I was like, is this about to take a romantic turn that I was like, Hmm. Yeah. And you know, I think that <laughs> maybe not to generalize and maybe this isn't true, but I do feel like, there being like age gaps in like gay romantic relationships is maybe more common because like (laughs) the population pool is Mm -hmm. smaller and yeah just sort of like the idea of people being or is she 18 is that the idea well yeah (laughs) they very clear that that was part of my initial concern was the number of times early on where it's like (laughs) she's 18 (laughs) yeah so you know i I don't think it would be wrong to depict that necessarily. Obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. that does raise sort of like you do raise an eyebrow. And it was more so like kind of it's not that I was like, it would be messed up if these two had like a romantic connection so much as just kind of like they're in such like a weird circumstance that every time I felt like it was going that way, I was just like, this just seems like, (laughs) you know, not even that I'd be like, oh, this is bad. This is gross. It just would be like a turn for Lou's character, particularly that I'd kind mm-hmm. of just be like, huh, this is like not really who I kind of like thought we were dealing with. Well, I think that I think maybe what I see in like the sort of like weirdness of the relationship is that like they are both, you know, they're at different points in their life, but they are sort of both looking for sort of someone to like go through it with and sort Mm -hmm. of like looking for that comfort in another person. And that is sort of what the book is about. It's just not a romantic relationship, which is Mm -hmm. perfectly normal and fine. Like two gay people can be friends without being romantic with each other. Can they though? It's sort of Harry met Sally for the modern day. Um, (sighs) Wow. Never, (laughs) never thought about it like that. Can a woman and a woman be friends? I do think also that like in terms of this question of like, you know, obviously we don't see anything romantic here, but like, is it, is there a potential future something? And then also the idea of like, what could you say to yourself? If you met yourself 10 years ago, what would you say, et cetera, et cetera. Stop me if you think this is crazy. No, (laughs) stop me if you think this is crazy, but is the cat's owner be in the future? That's interesting. Because that was my reading of it, just based on like she has a lot of 
I mean, obviously there's lots of like kind of weird stuff that happens dialogue wise, but like when she arrives, the first thing she says is about time you got here right before she leaves. One of the last things she says to her is don't worry, you'll be here again. Now take my bike, this weird, like retro futurist scooter. (laughs) (laughs) My Akira cycle. And, and there's just like a lot of shots of them, like kind of like directly looking at each other. And part of this is a more sort of like simplistic style that she uses. But I was like, it, you know, if you told me that that was the same character in 20 years, like I'd believe it. Oh, absolutely. And so then like, I mean, obviously, you know, it could go either way, whether to imply like they're lifelong friends or like maybe there's some kind of future romance. But it does also seem to suggest at various points that like she knows Lou very well and knows like details about Lou's life and, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. Like, I think, um, you know, when it first happened, I was like, is this going to be Lou's mom? Like that's sort of the vibe I was getting. Cause that would sort mm-hmm. of be like a bit of like a full circle thing. And then we sort of get that, you know, it's interesting because like we are sort of, I think the perspective character we'd say is, is uh, B, but it is kind of both of them and they do yeah. sort of each get their own sort of catharsis. I assume you noticed that <laughs> uh, Lou like, gets born yes yeah i sure did (laughs) (laughs) which is a fun always a fun thing yeah we love it um especially when her whole thing is like you know mom stuff yeah but yeah like i think uh something someone pointed out to me who was reading spinning was that like everyone like the the whole book and like so much of the book is sort of predicated upon like and I think a lot of her work is predicated upon the idea of, like, wanting to say something but not being able to say it, either because, like, you know, you are too scared to say it or you just don't have the words to express it and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's so much of what we see in this book. And, like, that is their relationship where it's, like, they both are hurting so much and they both, like, are looking for someone to share it with but then are also, like, too defensive to, mm-hmm. like share it with each other and so i thought that was interesting to sort of compare that with spinning that that is like sort of their dynamic that it's both like they want to say these things but neither of them can like do it for each other and then like you know you have at towards the end the idea of like b feels as guilt like she feels she's like of course lou deserted me because like i told her about this abuse that was happening and like that like alienated her which i think is a very common experience of people you know experiencing abuse is Mm -hmm. like that people won't want to hear it and so i feel like that sort of like i can never be loved and yeah yeah and so i think that sort of that that's interesting as well especially if we're you know looking at it as sort of like about controlling your narrative being able to tell your story that like sort of the empowerment comes in finding like sort of the courage to say the things that you want to say Mm-hmm. Yep. Great book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even just as I'm kind of like skimming through, I'm just like, I think that the dialogue is another area where in like, again, I think partly because the characterization has kind of improved and because these are deeper characters than a lot of what we saw in on a sunbeam. But I'm just like, the dialogue is really like 
just good in a way that is like, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say realistic because I feel like the whole notion of realistic dialogue is kind of like, that's not really a thing, <laughs> but it is more sort of like, I think naturalistic than a lot of what we've seen before. And yeah, just, it just feels very authentic, feels very like, it, it just feels like everything that every character says is like a genuine sort of like expansion on who they are and like helps us know them better, which is good. And I like it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm interested to hear if you have any thoughts on this, the, the title mm-hmm. it's interesting because, well, you she know, says it in the book. Exactly. I don't know if you noticed. (laughs) (laughs) I never point at the screen and yell whenever (laughs) someone says the title. Uh, Yeah, I know. I was I was thinking about this as well in terms of like who is saying it to whom is sort of the idea. Yeah, yeah. That like and and even just in terms of like I have a hard time sort of like connecting it more broadly to you know, what I think are kind of the main themes and the main sort of like thrust of the story. But I did think it was sort of like, it's a good entry point because, and and I mean that like uh, even kind of reinforces the whole idea of like, you know, so much of it is about like people wanting to say something, but they can't. And then it's like, but if I did say it, like, would you hear it? You know, is, is an interesting idea where I, I do think it both encapsulates a lot about who they both are at the start of the book and about their relationship to each other initially, and even, I guess, kind of as it develops, where when it opens up, they are both kind of like, one of the reasons I haven't said, you know, the thing that I should say or that I want to say is that I'm afraid that, like, if I said it, it wouldn't actually change anything. And also, you know, like we get to later, that's like, I will be judged. You will like look down on me for Mm -hmm. saying these things. Right. But then I also feel like when we see them kind of like clash with each other, especially early on, a lot of it is kind of like, you know, feeling like the other person is like deliberately um, like misrepresenting them or feeling like the other person like just doesn't get it, even though they've kind of like laid it out as clearly as they can, where I think like, you know, it's got some of their frustration with each other also sort of built into it. Yeah. They're like, there's so much like, no, it's like yeah. something that gets said a lot. The sort yeah. of like firm. It's not no. like this. It's like this. <laughs> yeah. Or like, I don't want to do this and you do want to do this. Yeah. And so that's sort of what I wanted to talk about is the idea that it's like, when you read the first part, you're like, oh, the this it's like, are you listening? But it, then, like, when it gets actually gets said in the book, it's like someone, it's like, I am telling you the thing that, like, you need mm-hmm. to hear and, like, are sort of that, that you know and but sort of have not been willing to accept, like, you know, because it's the classic thing where it's like, I mean, I I feel like she sort of, like, represents... I feel like she represents anxiety in like a very effective way. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I do like relate to her work a lot and just like the sort of idea that when you're in your own head, you sort of aren't able to like talk to yourself, Mm -hmm. which we see later in the book. Maybe, maybe (laughs) in a way that like is conducive to sort of you hearing what you need to hear and so you need that sort of external 
validation in order to mm-hmm. like make it real. And so it, it is like the, the person being like, you have to listen to me because I am like telling you the thing you need to hear. Right. Yeah. I do think that like there's an element of it where it's like the, the, are you listening question is more sort of like an existential kind of like the real question is like, can I be known (laughs) if that makes sense? Like, does it matter what I do or like, can you hear me? Yeah. Like, does it matter what I do or what I say if like, you are whether by like circumstance or just like by the nature of who you are or by how you like kind of see me unable to actually kind of like perceive what I'm trying to communicate, which is sort of like the the place that they're both at at the start of the book. And I think is also sort of the initial kind of distrust or not distrust, but like it's the initial kind of like friction in their relationship is feeling like maybe this is just another person who is like not going to be able to you know, hear what I'm saying basically. But then like, yeah, I do think that the, the the book is really about transitioning to the place where their relationship is now one where when they say that to each other, it's like more so like, are you able to receive this truth that like I'm trying to give you? Right. It, which, which is both like a demonstration of like, not only do I know you, but like I know things about you that you have not yet like accepted for yourself. Yeah, which I think gets back to sort of your idea that, like, it is it is a bit of the things I wish I could tell myself kind of thing. There are a couple of other things I definitely wanted to touch on, and they're sort of interconnected. Uh, one is the cat, <laughs> Diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other is, like, the depiction of these, like, <laughs> what are they called? The the Office of Road Inquiry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and just in general, by extension, like the depiction of men in this book, I feel like is very interesting, especially, you know, be- A, because we know that's something she thinks about, and B, going from On a Sunbeam, which explicitly does not have any men in it, which is something I wanted to talk about last week and we didn't really have time for. Mm-hmm. But that just, <laughs> those are two things I feel like that are very like interconnected to each other. I feel like there's... A lot of a lot of potential meaning behind sort of that depiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Like, I I just happened to be kind of like back at the start, and it is quite a while before you see the first like explicitly male character. Like, the bus driver is a woman. The gas store attendant where they meet each other is a woman. The doctor is a woman. Yeah, which is why she can't treat either of them because she's not qualified. <laughs> that's, your, that's your favorite joke. Is it? Do I say that a lot? I feel that like one? I've heard you say that. I, might, I, might I can't that treat this man. <laughs> I so feel bad. like that might be the first time I've articulated it that effectively. Perhaps. <laughs> I might have made a, a joke in that general kind of thrust, but... But you are, of but course, married to a doctor. I am, of course, married to a doctor who is a woman. I guess the first the first man we see is like the burger like place worker who even then like he true? kind of wanders in, wanders out. But yeah, I would agree that generally men are presented in this as like sinister as figures of danger. And the only like kind of exception to that other than I guess the burger worker is Marv I think that's his name right um Cora's husband. husband we assume right but where like like they don't really 
start meeting any men until they're in like West or at least in like West Texas in kind of like the weird zone already. And again, like it's often like, I, I think again, getting back to like the weird, like the headlights, the eyes, blah, blah, blah. The eyes of like the office of road inquiries guys are also kind of like headlights themselves. They sort of, they do gaze into the eyes of Deco a little bit. <laughs> they do. They do gaze a bit into the eyes of Deco. But like, I don't know if we see any man's eyes well, because yeah, like the burger guy, the burger guy, do we some diner his, person? His back is to us, though, right? They go there. There is definitely a diner. Maybe not like, yeah, I guess it's kind of in shadow. But yeah, like the, the whole the whole idea of like. I feel like this is sort of like the Texas of it all as well, which is sort of like the idea of not necessarily like a directly like hostile male presence, but just sort of like sinister and like threatening, threatening. And also like there is sort of an, an assumption of superiority, I guess is like the idea that sort of gets imparted because, you know, we start with, we start with the burger guy who like um, mistakes her for a man mm-hmm. and then is like, Oh, you're a woman. And then there's the guy in the car who's like, because yep. that's, that's the first like major sort of thing yeah. I noticed because he's he like, like, I don't know anything about cars, <laughs> but surely I can do something that you can't. <laughs> yeah. This, that, that's sort of like, and also like, and again, the, no, no visible eyes. Yes. Very like shadowy. But I think that is sort of the idea that she wants to impart is like the sort of like Southern gentleman, like congeniality baked in misogyny. Yeah. And even like because the next thing that they do is like stop at that weird store and it's like someone parks like so close that she's not able to get back into the car. And then she goes in and it's these tight aisles and like it's all just her getting like jostled by guys whose eyes we can't see who like are using very very familiar or very like um polite and even like jovial you know like lots of like pardon me excuse me but like constantly like kind of bumping her and like putting her off balance putting her off kilter pushing her kind of like further into this environment that is like creepy and weird yeah and i think it's almost like it is kind of like a brave decision to not make them overtly hostile because I think Mm -hmm. that is because like I think it would be easy like it makes the character more complicated and I think both of Mm -hmm. them sort of have this feeling like this feeling towards men of just like I don't know like implicit (laughs) threat yeah and not not even threat but just like potential for danger not even that far (laughs) I don't think like because like I don't I don't think she feels like well, yeah, because she does say at one point, like, not everyone is trying to murder us. But I do think that it's like not any not everyone is trying to murder us. But any of these people could be the one who is trying to murder us. Sure. But but again, like I and maybe that is closer to what she's saying. But for me, it's like I don't even feel like it's going that far as being like like the sort of direct idea of like men hurt women and mm-hmm. like this, like any man could hurt any women, woman in that way. I almost feel like it's more just like the assumption, <laughs> you know, it's sort of what I was talking about, this sort of like assumed superiority that it's like, 
if you're you know if you're in this aisle then it's like you're like that like the feeling that you're in a space that isn't was not like made for you or that mm-hmm. does not belong and, to and you're you. in the way and so men are going to just sort of like push past yeah and so yeah it's either like you're in the way or there's a certain type of like evil man i think like <laughs> mm-hmm. especially an older man that is like i'm not sexist and i'm so not sexist that i will like pay very close attention to any woman and like be like <laughs> verbalize how unsexist i am and it's mm-hmm. just and like you know, like the way that i will like the way that i show that everyone is equal is by like othering women mm-hmm. and i feel like that is the kind of like like the overly chivalrous kind of like uh you know yeah. the white knight type sure and it's almost like a banality of evil kind of thing where it's like well, there's certainly evil. lots of that with like the whole, you know, kind of like government agency side of things. Well, in this certainly, book. yeah. But I, but for me, it's like the banality of misogyny, kind of. That it's like right. it's not like you know, even though she, directly, like she has had this experience with like a male abuser. That it's like it's not about I'm worried this guy is going to abuse me. It's that like the world is designed to like enable abusers in a sort of way, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 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 sorry. I'm just like continuing to scroll through cuz like then they go into the like tourism kind of like office space and there's a guy in there but eyes hidden by glasses and then he is the one who like calls the road inquiry guys. Then they stop at the next diner and there's a guy who like we do kind of see his eyes once or his one eye once but he's still like all in profile yeah. and mostly yeah. from behind. And then I'm trying to get to Marv because I do think what kind of really drives it home is that Marv also has the like opaque glasses and we never see his eyes by my recollection. Oh, we do have like the the road inquiry guys show up who, of course, have like, you know, the fedoras pulled down low with like heavy shading. So we don't see their eyes either. But so I think Marv, assuming that is, in fact, his name (laughs) also has like the (laughs) opaque glasses and we never see his eyes and he's very nice. But then when they're like how do we for like yeah he doesn't really talk and then when they're like how do we get to west the like you know root of this weird evil he's like i know how to get there because yeah. like with a kind of weird implication of like because i like maybe i'm from there but it is sort of uh, like you know if if west is like the kind of like root place of this weird and like masculine evil that there's like a man has to kind of like tell them how to get there because like Cora's yeah. never been there, you know, like she doesn't really know how to get there, but Marv does, but he, he's, you know, he's like kind of like a good guy. So he's like, you know, I'm, I don't f- think you really like should go, <laughs> but if you are like determined to do so, I will like tell you how to get there. And the sort of idea that it's like, I am not even, I am not a bad guy, but also, like, I have this understanding of, like, this evil, <laughs> sort of, to some extent. But, yeah, and then I think, you know, obviously, there the sort of climactic encounter with the uh, highway road inquiry people. And then it sort of becomes a shift, because I don't, I think, beyond just the idea of, like, the presence of masculinity, it becomes a little bit more about the metaphor of the road and the Mm -hmm. way that the road is sort of like, like you were sort of saying that the road is metaphorical 
in terms of being like someone's path in life and this sort of and like they sort of exist to like mess with the road <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like we're in charge of the road like we get to decide who goes where on the road and like we want the cat because like the cat knows that like the road is made up and fake basically mm-hmm. or like, or, that, like, like the cat knows how to build roads and like yeah. we don't have and enough no roads one has control over the road <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and so i think that that sort of becomes like more of in, rather than s- strictly masculine that that sort of becomes a metaphor for like overall trauma is and you know maybe also like sort of the the male industrial complex. Well, like I do think there is still a lot of like kind of interesting like masculinity stuff, which is kind of baked in throughout the entire book where it's like, you know, Lou is a mechanic, which is traditionally yeah. a very masculine field. She works on cars, a traditionally I, very masculine <laughs> field. I was sort of starting to think about this as you sort of presented this, this metaphor. And it's like, it's like, we are the men who are in charge of cars and yes. we decide if you're yeah. allowed to drive or not. And, and like, you know, wanting to control the roads, but they don't really know how to make more roads. But the people <laughs> yeah. who figure it out are women and this cat who gender unknown to me but also like cats just like are gen- generally tend to be like female coden yeah. yeah where it is sort of like they are they lack the like feminine energy to know how to basically like access the magic needed to build more roads <laughs> sure and and in part because their focus is not on like making a path or making a way it's about like controlling who goes where and when and how yeah and like yeah the sort of idea that it's like ultimately these guys like don't do anything right. <laughs> like they don't really like what is your job exactly and like what is your problem mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean they are like pretty much literally gatekeepers yeah um but yeah that and i think that's very interesting and i sort of i hadn't con- considered that whole metaphorical element of it all and then i think like so i guess in that situation the cat and because you know the cat belongs to what i think you had a very good read of being an older bee and so it's like is i guess the cat is just representative of like the awareness like the sort of like understanding Mm -hmm. yeah like it's it is almost like i don't know what the cat is representative of or if if she's meant to be representative of anything because like when they do get the cat back to whoever that woman might be, Mm -hmm. she's like, she's just a normal cat. (laughs) Sure. But I mean, like, I think that, you know, that sort of works twofold where it's like, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, the cat is obviously represent. I mean, like, even though it's a normal cat, Mm-hmm. There is also like an implicit or an, an explicit understanding that it's like, well, like the cat knows how to build roads. And so like it yeah. is like magical in that way. But right. then it's, but it's, it's like, like a magic that like any of us exactly. can theoretically, you know, tap into. Yeah, exactly. And that's also and the also the idea. Yeah, I guess the idea of just like you don't have to be special to like create the, the a road. And mm-hmm. drive your car on so it. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like being creative is not monopolized by men. Right. Exactly. With regards to roads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
and you've just got to be standing somewhere in the world and in the body that lets you see it. Of course. Yeah. The cat. Again, weird, weird cats. Another Brian Lee O'Malley thing. Sure. It is weird. Like <laughs> they are really similar. Yeah. Just just great stuff. Now I'm looking at all the panel border stuff again, which is all very good. I think the part where I liked the use of it most was when they first get like the big chase by the road inquiry guys, like after they after they kind of like catch up to them the second time or the third time and like see them with the cat and then chase them. And you've got like, you know, the defined panel borders, but the panels themselves are getting like more angular and more like asymmetrical and more oblong and then they start like this road chase and they get like the Jinji Ito headlights <laughs> and it like bleeds out over the edge of the page on page 175 like the borders of the panels start to fade and like the the art bleeds out past them and then on 176 the panel borders get cut off right as B is like shouting at Lou to breathe because she's holding like because B is holding her breath. And then for the rest of the chase, it's just like no panel borders and like nonstop action in a way where I'm like, this is so good to me as a, like she's holding her breath. And so now the panel borders are like completely eliminated because it's all like, this is the span of one breath and she's just like white knuckling it through this whole crazy chase. And the panel borders don't return until we see her like, exhale basically like the next time there's a panel border is on 179 and you've got like the the first panel is like the front of the front of the car or like the front seat area um and you see like lose back b's hand b's knee that stuff and then there's a panel break and you can then like in the second panel see b exhaling or see lou exhaling um and, and you get like the rest of the seat where I'm just like, that's such a good, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like we talk, I feel like the sort of like conclusion that we have come to in, cause you know, we do talk a, about comics and compare them to movies and talk about them like they're movies a lot. But I think what we've sort of discovered is like the biggest way that comics are, I don't want to say superior, but like the thing that the things that the thing that the, comics the, it's can the do tool they have that nothing else does. Yeah. The things that com- the thing that comics do that movies can't is like have this control over time scale and have this control over like the pace at which you experience something. And it's such like a weird, unique thing. And I mean, like y- you sort of nailed it at the start of our podcast that like the idea of like, we'll do Scott McCloud first and this will like give us a foundation that will allow us to sort of like understand <laughs> comics you might say you might but yeah i think like that is like the biggest takeaway is the idea of like gutters and the space between panels and like the way that we read things is just like the power that comics have that Mm -hmm. nothing else has Mm -hmm. it is just like an interesting like you know i would say that when when we're like looking at her like tilly walden's work as a whole and like the thing that we go back to so often as or the things that we go back to so often as her kind of big strengths are often like mood tone like the the like emotionalism of the work all that stuff oh the guy's name is mac by the way um all that kind of stuff and i'm like i feel like usually 
kind of like the biggest tools in her toolbox that she has to achieve those effects are color and like negative space where I feel like a lot of times she achieves what she does by showing these like huge empty spaces, whether that's like, you know, the, the like huge halls of the end of summer, or like, I feel like there's a lot of panels in, in this book where it's just like huge swaths of sky and they're like, so, so small in like kind of the landscape. It is that kind of like negative space or empty space that contributes to it so much. And this is the first one where I've really felt like, the panels themselves, the layouts themselves. And like, again, like the, the gutter stuff, especially has been such a strong contributing factor to that where like, it just feels like the shapes of the panels, the shapes of like the gutters between the panels, the use of the gutters, all that stuff is so much a part of creating the like weirdness of the book, which again is like pervasive kind of right from the start. And it does also rely a lot on color and a lot on, you know, space and the depiction of space and all that. But it does feel like she's got another kind of like weapon in the arsenal here that whether it's just because this is material that suits it really well, or because it's something that she may have been like specifically thinking about or decided to focus on or what it just is employed, like extremely effectively for me, at least to to just kind of like take it to the next level. Yeah. And like the other thing is like, she's what I think of as like her, like, greatness is like backgrounds (laughs) like you see it in on a sunbeam so much where especially in like a splash page where it's like you'll have figures and they're like against a window and the window is just like framed with like Mm -hmm. the craziest like colorful like amazing thing and then this like i almost feel like at times it like doesn't want to like let that be a thing or and then you have that moment at the end where it is like such a I think that is what the that moment is going for a little bit. That splash page is sort of the idea of like, yeah. look how quite far like, we've come. Yeah, and it is quite claustrophobic at times. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes in ways that are very explicit, like in the grocery store. Other times, like, I mean, they spend so much of it in the car, which is like a claustrophobic setting. And I do in think traffic. that like, yeah, that's a, that's a good point where it's like, we do still get a lot of like the big empty spaces, but a lot of times it is seen like through the window of a car or like we see the exterior of the car and see that they are in this wide open space. But in terms of where the characters themselves actually are, it's usually either in a very tight enclosed space or if they're in a big space, it's very sort of like emotionally claustrophobic (laughs) yeah where like like for example i'm looking at like when they go into the texas visitor center where it's like a big wide open space and there's lots of kind of shots of them being very small but it's literally just like an empty room with a desk and like nothing else like there's nothing on the wall there's nothing there's no other furniture it's just a guy sitting behind a desk and other than that it's like a completely empty room even though even though it is quite like large and spacious Right. Or even when they like have the car crash, there are a f- couple of splash pages where it's just like the car in like nothing. Yeah, like blackness. Yeah. yeah. The abyss. Um, and I do think that even like, you know, there are there are moments where we do see a bit more like kind of environment, but they're often sort of like places of safety or refuge where like when they get to Cora's she lives in like the middle of the woods and there's this big splash page of the car pulling up to the house and there's like all these trees everywhere. And it's like, you know, that is kind of like a moment of respite for them where 
you know, like B's never not really like fully at home there, but um, Lou at least is able to sort of like connect with someone for a little bit and like be made to feel like welcome and safe and cared for for like, you know, a short time. Yeah. And what I sort of found another thing I sort of wanted to bring up is the idea that like and it's this again, this is sort of juxtaposing the idea of like having these two characters and sort of them being in like different phases of their life, even though they do have like things they both sort of need is the idea that like B needs help and Lou needs to like figure out how to help others almost. And, and then like, like like the thing that all that sticks out to me is like, you have the whole scene where B like goes to the house and meets someone um, <laughs> and sort of like gets advice from someone. And that, you know, maybe that's a more explicit version of what we've been talking about with the idea of like, what would you say to your younger self? Whereas with Lou, it's like the whole scene is like, she is crawling out of like the ocean herself. She goes back into the water to try and save B because she like thinks she's in the water. It's sort of this journey of like self understanding in a way and self acceptance mm-hmm. and less so like sort of needing that external validation. Right. Well, and just like there's so much like emotional repression with regards to her mom's death, which is really kind of like the crux of that scene. Mm hmm with Cora where like, I mean the big panel that makes it so kind of obvious is when Cora is telling her that like, she needs to deal with her grief basically. And then it's just like a close up. She's saying I'm dealing with it, but the panel is a close up of her hand, like wringing out this sponge, like so right. violently. And then, you know, a couple panels later, she like collapses sobbing at the sink. Great scene. Great book. Great book. Yeah. I mean, is there anything else we need to touch on? I feel like we've, covered most of it i guess the sort of you know the idea of a, like maps is quite prevalent but i feel like we've sort of said yeah an and, and maps like about a, geography yeah and i do feel like the quote that leads off the book really is kind of like not all there is to say about like how maps are used but does it, it is sort of like you know the key that unlocks a lot of that imagery symbolism etc yeah all travelers come to separate frontiers mm-hmm. sort of that even the the land might be the same, but the road is different, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or and that like, you know, there are there are places that every like everyone must like kind of walk their own path is is I think kind of also a, a big part of it where like, you know, not to say that you can't help be helped along the way, but every time they look at a map it gets them nowhere. And the whole idea of the quote is the guidebooks play deception. Oceans are a property of the mind. All maps are fiction. All travelers come to separate frontiers. And it is kind of the idea that like looking to like a guide to get you through a thing or to a place or where you're trying to go in terms of the things that this book is specifically interested in is not something that can be done or that carries that much value because you are in some ways walking uncharted territory and you know no one can draw the map for you because no one has yet kind of like been to that place because only you can go there and like you will never go there again yeah for sure yeah well said (laughs) thanks um i'm trying to find i feel like there's a part when uh b meets somebody at uh the house that um 
she says something that is like quite pertinent to this. Yeah, I'm sort of looking at the end now. And, you know, I think that it makes sense with sort of what we've been talking about, about the juxtaposition between the characters where B sort of needs to find a new place for herself or like find the place for herself. And Lou almost needs to like take comfort in where she is or like learn to accept where she is and not like be dragged down by her trauma, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it is like two, you know, because it is, I think you're right that it's sort of two versions of herself, but sort of the idea that it's like sort of presenting two different solutions to similar problems and sort of two different emotional approaches to similar problems, which I thought is interesting because it's like usually a book hat is by an author <laughs> and like has a viewpoint. And I think <laughs> mm-hmm. the sort of like acceptance and celebration of the idea that it's like the journey is not the same for everyone. There can be different like solutions to a problem, even though there might, there might be shared. I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the part that I was trying to find is when the woman says, most places mountains stay put, sky stays in one piece, kind of cruel really, but here everything is listening. <clears throat> the roads, the clouds, the trees, they know all your secrets. Everything you've seen is built by you, which is why you'll never see it again. Which again is the like, how can you how can you map it out? How can anyone have already mapped it out when you are the one who is like both like creating the frontier and navigating it? Yeah. And yeah, that's that's an interesting idea that it's like it's so many different there's so many different like ways the metaphor of the road can be applied because Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, we sort of talked about the whole Tilly Walden is the future of comics (laughs) because it's like (laughs) the idea of like other people, you know, like a road is usually something that like has been set by someone else. And so it's like you're following a road in some ways but then you're creating a new road for yourself. And I think that's sort of like an interesting duality to it. And it's like a road is also something that can be followed by others. And mm-hmm. the idea of sort of like guiding someone else is also very prevalent. And she's a teacher like at the uh, school for what you call it. Young comic stitions. <laughs> yeah, sure. The center for cartoon uh, studies. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, all of that is very interesting. Like the idea of, I guess that's something I never even thought about. Like the idea of like teaching and guiding someone is -hmm. very prevalent in this book as well. And she, I think at this time had become a teacher, right? Yes. I want to say yes. Sure. Uh, (laughs) It's settled. I, I just was like looking at the length of the book and thinking about how, like, I do feel like there is in some ways more we can talk about, but it is also kind of like, it's a fair bit shorter than on a sunbeam. And I would also say that it like there, it's a little bit like uh, shaggier in a way. Like there's just a lot more sort of like room to breathe. There's a lot of pages that might only have three or four panels and are given over to dialogue and not a lot of dialogue either. So it is like a bit, it is a bit more sort of just like tonal and, and intimate and personal than something like on a sunbeam, which feels crazy to say because <laughs> that book feels so tonal and intimate, but there you have it. No, I think that, you know, like, I think it was well observed by you that this is like, this is by far the most, uh, her book has a, a book by her has ever been like a character study, almost in the same way that like, 
you know, you can almost contrast it between like Scott Pilgrim is her on a sunbeam. And then this is like her seconds, maybe where it's Mm -hmm. like it still has those elements of fantasy, but it's less plot. Like the metaphor is less in the plot than it is like in the characterization. Like it is more of a pure character study in that way. And I think that, like you said, like it enables this like level of depth that we haven't really seen from her up to this point. Yeah. And the critics agree. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) this, uh, we're back, baby. She wins another Eisner, right? She does indeed win the Eisner for best new graphic album in 2020, beating out, I, a shame to admit, I've never heard of any of these other books. Beating out Bezimina by Nina Bunyevac, I'm going to say. BTTM FDRS. I'm going to say that's Bottom Feeders, <laughs> stylized by Ezra Clayton Daniels and Ben Passmore. Back Life the on the Moon by Robert Grossman. New World by David Jesus Vignoli. And Reincarnation Stories by Kim Deitch or Deitch, maybe. I'm not familiar with any of those. Can't speak to their quality, but I love um, each part. <laughs> based on having only read the winner, I feel good to say well-deserved win. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, it again, like I, maybe it's the web comic of it all that sort of derails it, but it's crazy to me that it's like spinning wins and Eisner. Honest One mm-hmm. Beam comes out. Uh, are you listening? Nominated. Another Eisner. <laughs> but also, like, nominated in a weird category. And I, I guess, like, that's the thing. It's, like, it's hard to sort of, like, it, it, it just didn't maybe fit into the sort of preconceived notion of the categories. And that sort of, like, messed with it. Yeah, maybe. And even just, like, kind of publication year where, like, it comes out in like it's digital form a year before it comes out in book form like they would have been eligible in different years which is maybe part of it as well (laughs) sorry i'm just seeing that ascender by jeff lemire and dustin Wynn was nominated for best limited series which i would not say that that's a limited series but who am i to uh (laughs) to say but but yeah interesting uh i guess year at the Eisners. I see also that uh, Tilly Walden's "My Parents Won't Stop Talking" co-creator uh, is nominated for best short story. Emma Hunsinger for "How to Draw a Horse" in *The New Yorker*. Oh, I think I've seen. Or I'm even just thinking of "How to Draw an Owl." <laughs> do you know about this? Yes. Or maybe it's Hunsinger. Hun. I do I do know about that. There was also a whole like Marvel did a like series of variant covers by Chip Zdarsky that was like how to draw, you know, the the main character of like the book, all of which were like, you know, very comedically inspired where like the Black Panther one was about like how to draw like all this like detail into the mask. And then the final step was like now color it all in black (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the Daredevil one. uh, He's like. It helps to use a photo reference. So let's use like New York District Attorney Matt Murdock to help us like shape the face and the jaw. <laughs> and then like basically like draws a picture of Matt Murdock and then like draws the Daredevil mask over it. And then it's like, huh, things of that nature. Yeah, a- hit, hit and miss a little bit. Those ones for me. But by and large, it's a good bit. Amusing. They tickle. Um, 
Speaking of tick, uh, the one that I was just looking at is one that's how to draw the tick, which is <laughs> step one, draw an oval in the center of your paper. Step two, bisect that oval by drawing a line through each of its poles. Step three, now draw the tick holding an oval with a line through it. <laughs> and it's just like a very detailed tick, like holding the oval as if it's a football. And then the next time is learn to draw like Albrecht Dürer, who I've never heard of, but it's like a very like... Mm renaissance looking painting with a baby holding an oval with a line through it sure oh good bit had by all anything to report sales wise uh it was released in september 2019 i want to say or maybe october fall 2019 debuts at number 131 on the uh, comicron list but again you know that's like comic shops yeah, that's that's the direct market. And I would say that this one is even maybe more susceptible to underreporting by Comicron because this is not only like uh, uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> stop it. Uh, not only a like literary graphic novel sale, but it's also like technically published by First Second and Macmillan, which is like Macmillan is just like a straight up like publisher of books. <laughs> but um Dude. yes, this this puts it, yeah, I see it. I'm not acknowledging it. This puts this it right between Comicron the, is uh, hitting. <laughs> Conan Chronicles, Cron, Conan Cron, uh, Epic Collection, and uh, Batman <laughs> Earth One Volume Two. <laughs> Comicron is estimating 772 units sold in the first month, which would put it at number 131. It's like uh, Snoop Dogg's numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone wants to do it? Double G? <laughs> sure. Number one that month, of course, Doomsday Clock Hardcover Part One. Sure. We dig clock into in that one. 6,100 <laughs> volumes. Clock in, clock out. Big time. Big time clock in, clock out. So, yeah, again, as with all of her other stuff, it's not uh, breaking any sales records in the direct market, and I have no doubt that this was a perfectly lucrative <laughs> undertaking for her uh, via some of the less traditional uh, comics channels, probably more traditional book channels. Sure, like uh, PBS. <laughs> the, the long pause searching for, what's a book channel? <laughs> what's a channel that could be about books? History channel's not really that much about that anymore. Uh, freaking CBC Radio 1, whenever the next chapter comes on. It's so true, the freaking book awards, whatever they're called. Canada mm, Reads. Canada Reads, yep. The Giller Prize, am I like, right? Hush Shad up now, Sheila's speaking. Margaret Atwood defending a book or whatever. I don't. I feel like Margaret Atwood usually has one of her books defended. Sure, sure, sure <laughs> she's sure. usually like, "I'm here to defend a book." I do feel like there was a comic that we read that was featured on Canada Reads. Yes, uh, anyways, I think there was. We may never know. Second was it a, one, I guess. Yeah, probably. I was going to say probably a blom. That will, I think, do it for us for today. Thank you all for. Are you listening? Nothing. <laughs> Please remember. To rate, review, subscribe, follow us at Got the Runs Pod on Twitter. Email us at gottherunspod at gmail.com. You can follow me at C House and Jan. Listen to Bevy of Bevies. Uh, I teased this before we started recording. Your thumbs down, Big Grizzly. 
I'm next. specifically I'm doing Warwick Davis in Star Wars Episode One in the stand that the Padres sure. thumbs down. Yes, I understand for weird, he is weirdly diagonal. <laughs> <laughs> Mad about Ben Quadraneros being knocked out of the race. Yeah, tomorrow I guess by on the day this comes out, there's a bevy of bevies banger dropping Coke versus Sprite, or sorry, not Coke versus Sprite. Uh, bevy conspiracy theories: Coke plus Sprite makes ginger ale. <laughs> Which is an explosive episode. <laughs> you will not I can want to only miss. imagine what that entails. It's, I assume you it, perform the experiment live and discuss your findings. That is precisely correct. <sighs> it's it's an amazing episode. I, mm-hmm. if I may humbly say, much like the one of uh, "Got the Runs" that you just heard. So make sure to tell a friend. Mm-hmm. Tell a friend. I went. I even remembered. Before we started recording, that I should say telephone at the beginning, but then I forgot. Next week, we'll be covering Clementine. Book the hotly one. anticipated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we really have been like roasting Clementine like implicitly. For like no reason. <laughs> For no <laughs> reason. Not seen a single page of it. So we'll see, I guess. Like, I'm very intrigued as to uh, what that's going to be. And that will be the end of our. Tilly Tilly miniseries. Uh, Can scarcely believe it. She seems to really pump them out, so hopefully uh, we see another one from her soon. It's quite a break between Are You Listening and Clementine, and the only thing she does in between is like a 40-page children's book on which she had like a collaborator, so... Right, and there was nothing going on in like 2020 or 2021. No, there wasn't. No, the creative process. You know what? I think if anything is likely to be stunting the creative process, it's probably the number of people who had to okay everything that was in Clementine. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Are there... How many uh, issues of Saga have come out? Are we going to have to do a Saga episode soon? No, not if we're like... I feel okay waiting to do another 18-issue chunk. So sure. the okay. answer is so like potentially not for like, yeah, six years. <laughs> Um, no, I assume I assume they're back to kind of like their previous schedule, but um, that does mean that we have like over a year until the next time we'll sure. be going back to Hit Saga again. Absolutely. Okay. So but Weird World then, could come out any day now. <laughs> something long? Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. And until that day comes, and until next week, to, to be, be kind. kind.